In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the courts at key junctures in the history of our state. The lectures included an examination of pivotal trials and some important legal personalities that figured in Ireland's struggle for independence. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneville of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. Today, we are delighted to bring these informative and engaging lectures to you in a different format and for a wider audience. In this episode, the Pigott Forgeries and Russell's Cross-Examination, delivered by Mr Justice Donald O'Donnell with an introduction by David Barneville. Good evening, everybody, uh, and welcome to the 10th and final lecture in the Green Street uh, Courthouse uh, lecture series. Um, this evening's lecture is to be delivered by Mr. Justice Donald O'Donnell, Judge of the Supreme Court, on the Piggott forgeries, and in particular on the cross-examination of Richard Piggott by Sir Charles Russell at the Parnell Commission. I want, before we start, and before I say anything more about uh, Donald, just to welcome Mary Rose Binchy, Donald's wife, here uh, this afternoon. Um, it's entirely appropriate that um, Mr. Justice O'Donnell, if I may call him Donald for current purposes, uh, should be the person giving uh, this lecture. It's on a topic uh, on which he has a great interest and on which he has spoken before. And I can confirm that he has been building up for a number of weeks for this lecture. He's been fine-tuning and perfecting his paper and his delivery. Um, I say it's entirely appropriate, as, as this lecture series uh, on famous Irish trials and famous Irish barristers kicked off on the 10th of February uh, of this year with a lecture by Mr. Justice O'Donnell's uh, late colleague, uh, Mr. Justice Hardiman. Uh, and that was, as people remember, on the trial of Robert Emmett. I think it's only right and proper that these series uh, should be bookended by lectures uh, from such uh, eminent uh, jurists and judges as uh, Adrian and, and Donald. Um, they have many things in, many things in common, uh, both supreme advocates at the bar, both having vast practices across a whole range of areas of practice, and both having the great distinction of being directly appointed to the Supreme Court from the bar. Adrian in 2000 at the tender age of 49, and Donal in January 2010 at the ten tender age of 51. And finally, both are rather intimidating to appear before, although in slightly different ways, I think we'll all agree. Um, I think for all of those reasons, it's entirely right and proper that Donald should be the person closing the Green Street uh, Court Lecture Series this evening. Please welcome Donald. Thank you, David, for that frightening introduction. Lord Russell of Cologne, Sir Charles Russell, Charles Russell QC, was all through his life a great believer in the linear narrative, the linear account of a case. He gave advice to his son, Charles Russell, who became a very famous solicitor, always to set out the facts in chronological order in a case. But we are here today trapped at the end of a legal year, of a long legal year of linear narratives. This happened, that happened, the High Court said, the Court of Appeal said, the appellant says, the respondent says, before falling exhausted on some form of conclusion. And so, Although the events I'm going to discuss today occurred almost 130 years ago in 1889, I'm going to start this story in 1971 when I was just 14. 
And for those of you um, younger people, you may not realize that that was an era of no social media, no mobile phones, there was not even any daytime TV, and you had to take your entertainment where you could find it. And in my case, one day I found myself uh, seeking entertainment, reading the letters of congratulations that had been sent to my father on his appointment to the High Court of Northern Ireland. Now, um, it was a long time before I was to write one of those letters and an even longer time before I was to receive them. And I did not realize then that they occupy a very special niche in li literary genre, somewhere between fiction and absolute fantasy. <laughs> and I was struggling to recognize the paragon there described. And I came across a slightly obsequious letter from a bank manager in Newry, my father's hometown, and the chairman or the president of the Chamber of Commerce who said what a wonderful thing it was for the town to have another judge appointed to follow in the footsteps of the great Lord Chief Justice, Lord Russell of Killowen. Now, um, as it happens, uh, I had spent a lot of time in Uri and have great affection for it, but by 1970-71, it was sort of object lesson in what had gone wrong in Northern Ireland. Uh, it was a 95% Catholic town with 40% male unemployment, and I struggled to understand how Lord anybody had come from Newry uh, and how, he, how the Lord Chief Justice could, uh, of England could be a hero, uh, even to the Chamber of Commerce in Newry. And if you go to Newry even today and drive down the hill from Clog, you come to a junction with five roads. The road immediately back is to Omeath. The, the road at right angles down through the town and on towards Belfast is Bridge Street, where my father was born, and the road right ahead, a small road, is now known as Dominic Street because that's where the Dominican Abbey is. But in 1832, it was Queen Street. And that's where, uh, in 1832, Sir Charles Russell, or Charles Russell, was born. Uh, it's also where um, John, uh, the area in which John Mitchell lived. And so I asked my father, what was this Lord Russell of Cullowan? And he told me a story then, which I'm going to tell you, but which I thought was frankly incredible. Um, but and stored it away um, with all the other dubious things I had been told and was to be told and came across it again in, in unusual circumstances 20 years later in the context of the Beef Tribunal because um, I was the boy in the Beef Tribunal on, on, a, on one of the teams and one of the issues arose and hadn't arisen for a long time what was the legal status of a tribunal of, of uh, inquiry, something that has occupied and tortured courts in this jurisdiction for the subsequent 20 and 25 years. And there was, uh, and I learned from a book um, called, by uh, George Keaton called Trial by Tribunal, which was the history of tribunals, that the Tribunal of Evidence Inqu Tribunals of Inquiry Evidence Act 1921 was modelled on the Special Commissions Act of 1888, which had been set up, which had been enacted to permit what we call the Parnell Commission, strictly speaking, the Commission of Inquiry into allegations made in the case of O'Donnell and Walters, uh, to operate. And such was the perceived success of the Special Commission that when, uh, when the Marconi investigations essentially failed, or the parliamentary inquiry essentially failed because it split along party lines, uh, there was a move to enact the 1921 Act to set up this type of commission uh, on a permanent basis. And Keaton recounts there in Trial by Tribunal the story of the Parnell Commission and in particular the great cross-examination of Richard Piggott by Sir Charles Russell. 
And it was me at all, that, uh, firstly, surprising to me to discover that my father had been right, um, which is, I think, always a surprise for a son. Uh, and secondly, made all the more telling because it was recounted in vivid and enthusiastic detail when the rest of the story of the Parnell Commission was shot through with a high degree of hostility to Parnell, Gladstone, Home Rule and the Irish cause. So, back to the linear narrative. Um, Charles Russell was born in Newry in 1832 of a respectable, um, comfortable middle-class family. Uh, they were a devout Catholic family. Three of his sisters became nuns. His uncle was the very famous um, and influential president of Maynooth who was friendly with and uh, influenced um, Cardinal Newman. Um, his father ran a brewery, which I think is probably much in the, in the nature of a microbrewery today. And as I say, they were comfortable, but not particularly wealthy. He was sent to uh, St. Malachy's College in Belfast, um, which as Paul Burns will know, is uh, we regard as the other Catholic grammar school in Belfast. It was the um, uh, diocesan college. And last year, Kevin Finnegan, who's a county court judge in Northern Ireland, told me that at some anniversary of the past pupils' union of St. Malachy's, they had uh, one of these online surveys to identify the most famous graduate of St. Malachy's uh, college, which had produced many distinguished men. Um, and he thought, as he said, that Lord Russell of Cologne would romp home but he limped home in third place. Second was a scientist who had gone and made something of himself in Silicon Valley. But way out in front was the actor Kieran Hines for his services to culture in Game of Thrones. Um, so after St. Malachy, he went back to Newry and then went on to Castleknock College in Dublin, where Brian McGovern tells me his painting still hangs, but where this college told little of the story of Sir Charles Russell. Uh, he wanted to go to the bar, but he was persuaded against it, and, and so became articled as a solicitor in Belfast. And he built up a practice there, um, and a, a significant event occurred when in Cushendall there were disturbances in um, the 1860s. Cushendall is in the Glens of Antrim. Everybody from Northern Ireland has a sort of mind map coloured green and orange. Cushendall is extremely green. It was the Irish-speaking, hurling, playing, centre of the Glens of Antrim. And a, a group of um, aggressive proselytizers came to the Glens of Antrim and started to distribute tracts in, and uh, distributed the Bible in Irish, which was welcomed by the people and indeed even by the, the local priest, but then became more aggressive and started to um, uh, publicly criticise the, um, the mass devotion to the Virgin Mary and took that to the extremes of doing so outside Mass one Sunday, and I think what is technically known as a shemazel incurred, and as a result, a lot of the Mass goers who had taken offence to this uh, were prosecuted. And they were prosecuted before the magistrates, who were, of course, essentially Protestant landowners and likely to be sympathetic to the, to the complainants. And Russell was asked to come from Belfast, and his defence of the, um, the protesters was widely reported in the nationalist press, and it was, I think, even discounting the hyperbole of, of history, a remarkable achievement, particularly for a young solicitor who at this stage had not received any formal training in law to, to conduct a defence um, 
extremely courageously, extremely courteously, but extremely forcefully in the face of magistrates who were hostile and who had in fact issued the warrants for arrest which he was challenging. Um, and that brought him to public uh, prominence and he revisited the idea of going to the bar and he was advised that he would not make, make it in Belfast because as a Catholic he could not expect to get the commercial work. I, he considered coming to Dublin but in a long letter to his future mother-in-law he explained that as a nationalist he did not see that it was possible to survive at the bar in Dublin. It was a case of swimming with the tide, which he regarded as um, simply impossible, as far as he was concerned, or starving. And he said of the bar in Dublin, which if you recall, Belfast at that time was a thriving commercial city. Dublin was a fairly moribund centre of, of uh, administration. And he said at the bar, it was a profession which once reckoned great men among its ranks and stood marked for its independence but would now be more fitly characterised for its servility and absence of public virtue. And for that reason, he decided to go to England. And he went to practice, as many others did, in Liverpool, where there was a big Irish uh, contingent. Although he didn't live in Liverpool, he practised on that circuit and lived in London. He, he was, and as they always say, a great success. But, as, but at one stage, somebody said to him, really, you could do much better and earn twice as much if you would lose that Irish accent. And he said he would do just as well without the money. Thank you very much. Um, he, he pursued a career in politics. He sought, first sought election as a liberal in Dundalk in 1868, when he was defeated by uh, another liberal, uh, Philip Callan, who must be, I think, related to Paul Callan. By the, but some sense of what the franchise was at that time can be gleaned from the fact that the, vote, the, the margin was 164 votes to 143. He was eventually elected for Dundalk in 1880 by now beating Mr. Callan 263 to 214. He was living in England at the time, but it's interesting from the biography and his own uh, diary how much he was connected to Ireland, County Down and Killowen in particular. Killowen was is between Warren Point and Rostrever, a beautiful seaside area, and his family had moved there for about 12 years before moving back to Newry. There's a biography of Lord Russell of Killowen written by Barry O'Brien, who was another Irishman in London at the time and another barrister. Uh, he had also written a life of Parnell. It, the biography of Lord Russell is not great, um, uh, but it is interesting in its focus on the legal aspects because Barry O'Brien, as a barrister, was, was interested in and uh, witnessed some of the uh, Russell at different times, uh, particularly at the time of the Parnell Commission. But uh, as we all know, the skills of a barrister are fairly ephemeral. You know, the, it's very difficult to convey um, all the uh, what's involved and what makes somebody good, very good or successful. Um, the, the sort of endless parade of anecdotes at which a barrister is always great, always triumphant, uh, and, and, and stories that lose the humour the, once they're repeated is the stuff of barristerial biographies. Um, and so it's hard to, to detect or understand or see exactly what made Russell stand out in his early years. And practice then was quite different to what it is now. There was little paper, little discovery, 
many dramatic trials where witnesses may not have been particularly well educated and well prepared. Um, but even so, making allowances for that, there are bits in the biography that I, that I find interesting because they ring so true. Uh, Russell was famously bad-tempered. I imagine you can't believe that of any barrister, particularly with juniors and solicitors. Um, it was said by him, however, that one of his features was that he never assumed knowledge, um, that one of his strong features was, um, as, bar as it was said, he assumed ignorance. In consultation, he sought information from everyone, asked questions of everyone, argued with everyone, tested everyone, and it must be added, put everyone on his mettle. Russell, said a solicitor, was not an overconfident man, quite the reverse. He was anxious to consult with everyone of intelligence to get help and advice all round. But then, when he had made up his mind finally, he had the immense, he had the faculty of impressing you with the conviction, and he had immense confidence in himself and in his case. The difference, says a distinguished lawyer, between Russell and Blank, another anonymous QC, uh, was this. In consultation, Russell appeared to know nothing and listened eagerly to everything you had to say. Blank, by contrast, appeared to know everything and brushed your suggestions aside contemptuously. When Russell came into court, he knew everything. When Blank came into court, he knew nothing. <laughs> um, and it's, maybe, it's seven years, but it's may, may be true to say that, that that has happened as well, or still happens today. Um, there's a great description in Barry O'Brien of, of Sir Charles Russell before the cross-examination of Piggott, anxious, irritable, lost in thought, distracted, and I'm sure many of the families of barristers before important cases recognise those symptoms. Uh, couldn't, uh, um, and similarly, after the cross-examination, uh, Tim Healy says that Russell, who loved gambling, uh, loved horses, um, was found, was reputed to have gone to a, an illegal gambling den the very night of the cross-examination and uh, was, was raided by the police and he had to escape by sliding down the drain pipe. And there's, there's something in that irritability before and exuberant celebration after that still strikes me as, as um, resonant of uh, practice. Um, in 1872, he took silk. Um, he, in 1878, he moved, as many other successful barristers like um, F.E. Smith, moved his practice to London and became an extremely successful barrister of the day, one of the barristers of choice, you might say, supported by George Lewis, a very famous solicitor of the time. And he had achieved a certain position that he had uh, obtained a retainer from the Times to act for them in any um, action. And of course, I mean, that was a, a sign of how far he had risen because the Times was the newspaper of the time arguably in the English-speaking world. In 1880, as I say, he'd been elected an MP as a Liberal, and he was undoubtedly on the rise within the Liberal Party publicly, and he was at a, at a very high stage in his career. In 1883, he accompanied Lord Coleridge, the Lord Chief Justice, and Lord, Mr. Justice Hannan and others on a lengthy trip to the, U the United States, because at the time, you know, after the Civil War in the United States, there was a huge upsurge of interest in the United States, in England uh, in particular, because this, this thriving uh, economy, and they were fascinated to go and see um, what, why it was successful, what was happening. And he took an interesting tour of America, visited his sister, who was a, in a convent in San Francisco, 
and wrote letters back to his children, which then were to her later published. And they are charming, um, and most significantly, I think, because they show such a connection to uh, Ireland when he describes this timber um, shoot that ran for more than 50 miles in California. He says to the children, imagine something running from Dublin to Newry. Um, he said even more affectingly that he went on a second day in New York to Mass in St. Patrick's Cathedral, the great cathedral that the Irish had built in, in New York, the Irish immigrants had built in New York. And he said, as he was describing it to them, the Church of New York is as far as architectural beauty and it is the Church of New York as far as architectural beauty and grandeur are concerned. It is a very grand building indeed, not unlike the Dundalk Church, but on a much grander scale. Um, and so on the next time you're in the courthouse in Dundalk, you can take a walk down Clanbrassel Street and look at St. Patrick's uh, uh, there and think of St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue. He met the leading lawyers of the day. He traveled all over. Uh, he met Sitting Bull, who, as he described, had recently defeated Custer. Um, and he went, met his, his neighbor from Newry, the widow of John Mitchell, a man who he, he himself had met uh, and who he spoke very highly of. John Mitchell had gone to America and, as had happened, the Irish divided over the Civil War and Mitchell had taken the Southern cause. And two of his sons were killed in the Civil War. But when one of them was killed, the New York Irish papers published um, a whole front page in mourning, even though those papers would have been supporters of the Union cause. And, it's, and it, you get some sense of where Russell was politically when he said, however much men may differ as to John Mitchell's conduct, measured by the, measured by the cold standards of prudence, all men recognize in him the rare stuff of sterling unselfish devotion to the cause he advocated. And so he made a special trip to meet M Mrs. Mitchell, who had in fact been a neighbor of his family in Dominic Street in Newry before she eloped with John Mitch Mitchell. And while he was there in New York, he recounts how he was approached by interested people to tell him that they wanted, he was going to be retained to act uh, for Pat O'Donnell on trial for the murder of James Casey, um, or James Carey, sorry. Carey was the informer who had given evidence against the Invincibles in respect of the Phoenix Park murders of Lord Frederick Cavendish and Under Secretary Burke. And like most of us, we learn, or most of us learn our history from music. And if you know the um, fake old ballad written in 1958 by George Hodnett and popularized by the Dubliners, Monto, he, has, he explains the general position. Um, the Invincibles, having killed uh, Burke and Cavendish, were driven away by taxi, taxi men. Actually, notes were left in newspaper offices declaring them to be the Invincibles. One of the taxi men, and who later was on trial, was a man who rejoiced in the name Skin the Goat. And in Hodnett's uh, phrase, when Kerry told on Skin the Goat, O'Donnell got him on the boat. He wished he'd never been afloat the dirty skite. It wasn't very sensible to tell on the Invincibles. They stuck up for their principles day and night. Um, Kerry had given evidence he was the loathed informer. He was in a witness protection program, if you like. He was uh, exported to South Africa. He was recognized on the boat by Patrick O'Donnell, who shot him. And O'Donnell was then to be tried, now, in London. Now, that was not an attractive brief to a man who had made his way with the success that Russell had, because he was a com a, 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 one of the coming men in the Liberal Party. He was a very success successful 
uh, barrister sought, sought after by everybody in London. And the Phoenix Park murders had been a huge, huge blow uh, uh, and, and a, a huge controversy in British politics, not least, and in liberal politics, not least because Lord Frederick Cavendish was married to Gladstone's niece, had been Gladstone's private secretary, was liberal royalty in waiting, as it were. And, and a sign of how divisive this was is that his brother, Cavendish's brother, was one of ultimately the 93 Liberals who bolted from the Liberal Party in 1886 rather than vote for Home Rule. And much of that went back to the fact of their horror of the Phoenix Park murders. And it might have been easy to say no, but, but uh, Russell's response was to say he had heard nothing from anybody in London. It was not his normal line of business, which was true. He would prefer not to be in the case but he would not be justified in refusing to act. And he was briefed, and he did battle away on behalf of, as he described it, a hopeless cause, up to a, and a, the point of making personal appeals for clemency, but did not save Patrick O'Donnell. Uh, in 1886, he was appointed Attorney General in Gladstone's short-lived government, which fell with the defeat of the Home Rule Bill. And the defeat of the Home Rule Bill plunged British politics into chaos. It's hard to imagine now um, the... the um, because there, uh, but in those days, the, the, the emergence of the whole of the Irish party, all of which I, I should say is all beautifully described in Brian Cregan's uh, book on Parnell, his novel on, about Parnell, the emergence of the Irish party destabilised um, British politics. Um, the uh, split of the Liberal Party destabilised British politics. And uh, on one side, you had those who loathed everything to do with Ireland and Parnell, they blamed for causing this chaos. On the other side, it's proper to remember, there were very, very many uh, liberals who fully espoused the cause of Irish Home Rule, like Lord Coleridge, the Lord Chief Justice, like Gladstone, like Sir Thomas Scrutton, who later became a Lord Justice of Appeal, all of whom spoke passionately in favour of it. Now, um, the Times was not in favour of Home Rule. The Times published articles on a regular basis described, entitled Parnalism and Crime. And what those articles sought to do was attach the undoubted agrarian violence that was occurring in Ireland to the Irish, to the Irish Parliamentary Party. And that was not particularly difficult because in the nature of things, the, the, the spectrum of Irish opinions was fairly fluid. And on occasions, members of the, of the Parliamentary Party had spoken quite wildly um, publicly. And so this, this was being generally detailed. Um, and whereas at one level, from an Irish point of view, you could say that Parnell was harnessing what was this um, dangerous situation from the British Tory view, all they could see was the violence, the threat to landlordism, the threat to their, their uh, families and um, friends in, in Ireland. And in one of the periodic attempts to deal with that, uh, a coercion bill was to be introduced by the Tory government in April, eight, uh, April the 18th, 1887. And the Times caused a sensation by publishing a letter uh, by Charles, Charles Stuart Parnell, or signed by Charles Stuart Parnell, saying, Dear Sir, I'm not surprised at your friend's anger, but, uh, but he should... He and you should know that to denounce the murders were the only, was the only co uh, course open to us. Those murders were the Phoenix Park murders. I regret the accident of Lord Ca Frederick Cavendish's death, 
I cannot refuse to admit, however, that Burke got no more than his deserts. Um, and that was, as a, that was like a heat-seeking missile pointed straight at that uh, point of vulnerability within the Liberal Party and putting their finger on uh, uh, the thing that most alarmed people in Britain about what had happened in Ireland in the last uh, decade and, at, and suggesting that Parnell, when he had condemned the, um, the murders, was a hypocrite and was in fact encouraging this. Now that caused a political sensation because the Liberal Party was essentially to, uh, had committed itself to home rule and to seeking the support of the Irish Parliamentary Party. And Parnell was remarkably passive about it. He said it was a forgery, but not on very convincing grounds. Um, on the other hand, he took no action, which the Times might have wanted. And instead, a sort of um, an unusual figure, F.H. O'Donnell, who had been an MP, announced that he was, or brought proceedings against Walters, the editor of the, of the Times, for libel, asserting that the general allegation that the Irish Parliamentary Party had encouraged or um, uh, crime um, was libelous and defamatory of him. It wasn't specifically related to this letter. And that gave the Times the pl a platform that they had been looking for. Um, and it was a bizarre set of proceedings. Tim Healy, was ex who was never short of looking for a conspiracy, was very uh, suspicious of the fact that O'Donnell retained only a junior consul, did not himself go into evidence, and the Times had retained um, Sir Richard Webster, who was, if you like, the counterpart of Sir Charles Russell. He was the Conservative Attorney General, the then Conservative Attorney General, and had indeed been the, the Attorney General preceding Russell. And there was an immediate blurring because of Webster's role of the position of the Times and the government. And he took the course of not simply seeking a dismiss of the proceedings, but of making a speech for three days, attacking the parliamentary party and producing more of the letters. And that, of course, caused even more consternation. Um, uh, something had to be done. Parnell sought a parliamentary inquiry and the government refused, perhaps perceiving that it would split along party lines and would get, would get nowhere. And so they took the initiative setting up a special commission and then choosing the judges who would chair it, which was again very controversial because the three judges who, who chaired it or who sat in it were Sir James Hannan, who had been with um, uh, Russell in America, A.L. Smith and Mr. Justice Day, all with connections to the Conservative Party. So there was an element, because it, so it, the commission, far from being what is now regarded as a good example of a, of a neutral and dispassionate um, inquiry was assailed from the outset as being set up to attack um, and to get, to obtain, to get the, the result the government wanted. And the allegations that they were into, inquiring into were not just the, le the, the, the letters in a, in a tactic that was re has been reproduced time after time in relation to tribunals. The, the terms of reference were to inquire into all those allegations made in the case of O'Donnell and Walters, among other things. So everything was up for grabs. And, and the difficulty facing the Irish side, if you like, was that we had these um, letters that were dynamite on the one hand, but you also had this endless allegations of different types of agrarian violence 
some of which simply could not be denied. And the combination of those two things could have been catastrophic for the parliamentary party and indeed for the Irish cause. Um, Russell was act, asked to act for the Irish party and he resigned his retainer, sending it back to the Times. He got a very clever letter from Mr. Soames, who was the solicitor to the Times, and who said um, that, of course, he was sorry that he was re re resigning the retainer because of his political uh, involvement, although he didn't fully understand that. But he was satisfied that you would not return it in order to be at liberty to represent persons whose interests may be antagonistic to the paper. In other words, he was saying, I'm assuming that you're not going to act for us, but not against us, and I'm assuming it, not asking you. And some of us might have prevaricated or left that, pushed that letter around the desk for a while. But Russell immediately responded from actually a position of weakness. After all, he had a retainer, which normally meant that you acted for them and certainly not against them. And he said bluntly, I do desire to act for people who you describe as antagonistic to the paper. I desire to appear for the Irish Parliamentary Party. And he said, if you have a problem, effectively said, if you have a problem with that, state it now. And he called their bluff, the newspaper being unwilling, I presume, to, to create a public fuss and deprive someone of the council they had chosen. So the Times again retained Sir Richard Webster, the Attorney General. And again, the lines between the government and the Times were blurred because effectively the administration in Ireland was sent out to gather all the evidence uh, of the agrarian crime and outrages that had been accounted for or allegations being referred to, and they were all supplied to the Times. Um, the, the Special Commission started in late 1888, and it sat in the Royal Courts of Justice, and it decided that it would follow very much along uh, court-like lines, and as a result, the Times took on the role of the prosecutor making the case, and so called all the evidence uh, to begin with. And so you had this um, great stage set in the courtroom um, with Sir Charles Russell on the one hand and Sir Richard Webster on the other. Um, now, the junior counsel for the par parliamentary party was actually none other than Asquith, Herbert Henry Asquith, one of, regarded as one of the brightest men of the time and about one of the leading liberals, uh, leading barristers indeed, um, and in due course would become prime minister. And he gives, again, I think, an account that, that resonates because it's the sort of thing that I imagine you might still hear in the, uh, in the coffee room uh, in, a, in uh, evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of the two counsel. And uh, he, said, he said this, um, it is difficult to conceive two more diverse types. Webster had taken a respectable degree in, at Cambridge where his chief distinction was gained in long distance races on the running path. He was a man of the most unwearying industry, of prodigiously strong physique, with an exuberant geniality of manners, which, though not insincere, was apt to be a little overdone. He used to call his juniors by their Christian names as soon as he ascertained what they were. He amassed in a very short time an enormous practice and was a great favourite with the solicitors, though neither his speaking nor his examination of witnesses rose much, if at all, above the level of mediocrity. But he was, after his own fashion, an adroit and resourceful antagonist, possessing in a supreme degree, as I have more than once experienced to my cost, the art of the cuttlefish which darkens the waters. He was seen perhaps to least advantage in the Parnell Commission, and his acceptance while Attorney General of the Times brief in that famous inquiry stuck a death blow at the custom, which up to then allowed the law office of the Crown to take private practice. Webster was the most blameless of men, a sound Tory, a good churchman, and an amiable and benevolent in all relations in life. 
Charles Russell, whom for real genius, I put in a class by himself among the advocates of my time, was an Irish Catholic, born and brought up in Ulster, where he started practice as a solicitor. He came to London, was called to the English bar, settled down for a time at Liverpool, where he soon became a busy junior at the local passage court and at the Assizes. He took silk early, acquired a commanding practice on the Northern Circuit, and rose rapidly to the effective leadership of the common law bar. He was a good, without being exactly a profound lawyer, and had an autocratic manner, and when he pleased, a rough tongue, which made a consultation with him an ordeal to which few solicitors or junior counsel, however eminent, looked forward without a certain degree of apprehension. And um, give or take, you can still see those assessments being made of different people. I mean, the, one of the, um, I suppose, recurring themes of the bar is the identification of the person um, overestimated by solicitors, not that good really, and somebody else who is very, very good but not particularly rated. Um, the only thing is nobody ever agrees on who's in the different categories or where those categories are at the time. But, but it was interesting that, that Asquith writing at the time or shortly afterwards to said that he, uh, he put him in a class by himself among the advocates of the time for real genius. And as he said, it was the Parnell Commission that really showed up the difference between the two of, between them. And Webster opened the case, led the evidence um, uh, as the prosecution, and um, in February 1889 came to the point, and a good number of weeks into the commission, which, which many people had been waiting for, everyone had been waiting for, evidence in relation to the letters. Now, there had been a preliminary skirmish and the Times had sought not to disclose the identity of the person from whom they had sought obtained the letters, but they had been forced to disclose that they had been obtained um, in a roundabout manner by a number of by a man called Houston from Richard Piggott, a failed Irish journalist down on his heel, uh, down at heel, and a fairly odd-looking uh, specimen who had been around Irish um, politics and journalism for some time. And he was now known to be the source of the letters. And he was called and gave his evidence, as Barry O'Brien says, uh, very clearly and calmly. And was, at this stage, clearly being put forward and by the Times as a witness of the truth and a witness in whom they believed. Um, now, Barry O'Brien has the high point of his biography is this description because he, he has the benefit of being the barrister seeing this happen and being close to the case. Um, in fact, I think in, in Brian Cregan's book, he invents a character much like Barry O'Brien, who is an Irish barrister in London, who witnesses what's happening uh, with Parnell. Um, and he, so he, he, he says, on Wednesday, February the 20th, Piggott went into the box. He looked well and pugnacious. Any person unaware of the flaws in his character would have regarded him as a respectable man and a staying witness. He gave his evidence clearly and calmly, and at the conclusion of the first day's evidence examination, left the box with a self-satisfied expression. On Thursday morning, he returned, looking radiant and confidently surveyed the court. Before adjournment for luncheon, the examination in chief closed. He had evidence so far as the letter has been, um, he, he, he sets out the evidence. Um, and he then says, um, addresses, uh, Parnell, or Russell's cross-examination and describes how anxious and nervous Russell was beforehand. 
Um, even at lunch before, he seemed to be thoroughly out of sorts, gave you the idea of a young junior with his first brief than of the most formidable advocate at the bar. Now, all was changed. As he stood facing Piggott, he was a figure of calmness, self-possession, strength. There was no sign of impatience or irritability, not a sign of illness, anxiety or care. Slight tinge of colour lighted up the face, the eyes sparkled, and a pleasant smile played about the mouth. The whole bearing and manner of the man, as he proudly turned his head towards the box, showed courage, resolution, confidence. Addressing the witness with much courtesy, while a, while a profound silence fell upon a crowded court, he began, Mr. Piggott, would you be good enough, with my Lord's permission, to write some words on that sheet of paper for me? Perhaps you will sit down in order to do so. A sheet of paper was then handed to the witness. I thought he looked for a moment surprised. This clearly was not the beginning that he had expected. He hesitated, seemed confused. Perhaps Russell observed it. At all events, he added quickly, would you like to sit down? Oh, no, thanks, replied Piggott, a little flurried. The president of the court said, well, I think it's better you should sit down. Here's a table upon which you can write in the ordinary way the course you always pursue. Piggott sat down and seemed to recover his equilibrium. Russell, will you write the word livelihood? Piggott wrote. Just leave a space. Will you write the word likelihood? Piggott wrote. Will you write your own name? Will you write the word proselytism? And finally, I think I will not trouble you at present with any more, Patrick Egan and P. Egan. He uttered these last words with emphasis, as if they imported something of great importance. Then, when Piggott had written, he added carelessly, there's one word I'd forgotten. Lower down, please, leave a space, write the word hesitancy. Then, as Piggott was about to write, he added, as if this were the vital point, with a small hitch. Piggott wrote and looked relieved. Will you kindly give me the sheet? Piggott took up a bit of blotting paper to lay it on the sheet, but Russell, with a sharp ring in his voice, said rapidly, don't blot, blot it, please. It seemed to me that the sharp ring in Russell's voice startled Piggott. While writing, he had looked composed. Now again, he looked a little flurried and nervously handed back the sheet. The Attorney General looked keenly at it, and then, with the air of a man who had himself scored, my lords, I suggest that had better be photographed, if your lordships see no objection. Russell, turning sharply towards the Attorney General, and with an angry glance and an Ulster accent which sometimes broke out when he felt irritated, do not interrupt my cross-examination with that request. Little did the Attorney General at that moment know that in the ten minutes or quarter of an hour which it had taken to ask these questions, Russell had gained a decisive advantage. Piggott had, in one of his letters to Pat Egan, spelt hesitancy thus, with an E, um, E-N-C-Y. In one of the incriminatory letters, hesitancy was also so spelt, and in the sheet now handed back to Russell, Piggott had written hesitancy too. Now, um, interestingly, the, the, the document was just taken and the cross-examination proceeded, and Piggott was, in a, in a, on any version, a fantastic and dramatic and forceful cross-examination in which Russell was in charge from, of everything, Piggott was broken, simply broken. Um, now, what, put, what Russell had was that Piggott had corresponded with a number of people, including the Archbishop of Cashel, in correspondence that seemed to say that he uh, to warn the Archbishop and inform him about the, the plan of the Times to publish these letters which were going to incriminate uh, Parnell. And so, um, so the, he was simply caught with this correspondence which he hadn't thought of, and he was just driven relentlessly and ruthlessly to the point where on the next day he admitted forging the letters himself by taking a piece of, uh, an, a letter of Parnell's, putting on a glass paper, putting uh, tissue paper over it and, and uh, faking 
the, the signature, a version that hasn't gone out of uh, practice totally in Ireland in the last century, I think. Um, but, um, and he did not turn up for the third day's hearing, um, escaped um, again to Tim Healy's, in Tim Healy's conspiracy theory, escaped surprisingly from the police and fled to Madrid. He was found in Madrid and told he had to come back to answer charges of, per among other things, perjury. He asked to go to his room and there shot himself. Um, again, Tim Healy's not so sure that he did the shooting. <laughs> um, but records, but it is a fact that the last, that the last person, I suppose, from the British Isles to be to see uh, Richard Piggott, other than I suppose the policeman who called, or certainly the person who dined in the same restaurant in Madrid that evening, was Captain William O'Shea, um, Parnell's antagonist, who had given evidence for the Times in the commission, and who Parnell always believed had been behind um, the forged letters. Um, now, that is the great opening shot of one of the great cross-examinations, and it's enormously theatrical. It is the skill of the conjurer, it's the um, deflection, don't look there, look over here while I'm doing something here. Um, and it was a, a devastatingly successful cross-examination. Now, funnily enough, if you look at this with the sort of cynicism of a barrister, you will say, well, when you read the cross-examination, sure, how could it end otherwise? When you see the information Russell had to, to work with in terms of the correspondence the, the versions that Piggott had committed himself to. And in fact, that was a point made by no lesser a, a judge of barristerial talent than Richard Piggott himself, because Tim Healy says that he met, that he was, there was a story was that he was dining that night, the night uh, during the cross-examination in a restaurant in London called the Alhambra, and somebody went over uh, to commiserate with him and said that was a stunning cross-examination by Charles Russell of you today, and Piggott said, no, not at all. He had such great material. Um, and that, that is true. But um, what I think is very, I think that this whole thing repays a bit of thought and study. Firstly, one thing that, that impressed me is the immense courtesy with which the whole thing was conducted. There was no histrionics, there was no uh, accusations, um, there was no playing to the gallery. And it is an, an illustration of the way in which the more forceful, the more courteous it is done, the more how, how effective and forceful the points can be made. They, in fact, in a sense, gain something from the, 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 cur the courteous way in which they are advanced. Um, but I think it's worth also asking, there was an immense risk taken in asking him to write down the words on the, on the page. What if Piggott spelt hesitancy correctly this time? That was the word they were looking for. No other words. There weren't other misspellings in the correspondence. What if someone had alerted him to that? What if he himself had seen it and realised he misspelt it? Um, what if, what if, what if he had simply doubly misspelt it, as it were, just got, got it wrong again? What would have happened of that part of the cross-examination? Cross um, now, I think there's a reason for that. Um, my, to my view, it may be completely wrong. But I think you have to look at what was an issue here. This wasn't a normal case. This was a tribunal like many tribunals, and the audience was much broader. The Times calculation was, look, may have been, look, 
the letters may not be great because certainly that, that, that's not how we normally get information and you have to deal with some fairly uh, shady people to get, to get le the letters. But the evidence of the agrarian outrage is, is unanswerable. And if we get a win on that and a draw on the letters, uh, on the one side and the other side, maybe yes, maybe no, or maybe we get a tepid finding, that serves our purpose. It would serve their purpose to, if the charges made had been uh, established. Conversely, from Russell's point of view and from Parnell's point of view, it was not good enough to just put up the information and get the judges to say, on balance, while everybody was telling, trying to tell the truth, they were not satisfied beyond any doubt or on the balance of probabilities that the letters were genuine. That, was not, that might win a case, but it was not going to win the Parnell Commission for Parnell because he had to win that point entirely because the Times, for example, and those sympathetic to it, were not going to faithfully recount the fact that Richard Piggott didn't do so well today in cross-examination. They were going to, like Fox News or whatever, spin this as best they could to maintain the version which, after all, their readers wanted to believe. So only the knockout punch was going to work. In a sense, the object had to be not just to establish for the judge's point of view on the balance of probabilities, not just to establish for the people in the courts that Piggott really wasn't a very plausible witness. It was that he had to be made to admit to the forgery himself. And that, in a sense, required a depth charge, um, which was the, 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 which in the misspelling was the very thing that was able to force him to make that uh, admission. But you also notice that he didn't drop the hammer immediately. He didn't turn around and say, aha, I have you, because here's the letter in which you misspell hesitancy. And I, I think, I don't know, but I think there are probably two things there. One was he didn't know that he was going to get that. But secondly, um, sec secondly, it must have been a very unnerving experience for Piggott and for those who were instructing him or who were supporting him to wonder what it was was on those, on those sheets, what point was coming, and to have to give your evidence in the light of that. And, um, and as I say, um, thirdly, it was the, or it, it was the evidence um, that when produced uh, was going to, um, to put the case beyond any argument, as indeed, that, as indeed he achieved. Now, I think you've probably all heard the old story or the barroom story that the three things a barrister needs are ability, availability, amiability, and availability. Um, and of course, there is some truth in that, and it's meant to say it's important to be both amiable and available. But it's a truth only because it sets itself up against what we really know, which is that ability matters. And if you wanted to see that, then the Parnell Commission was the place to see it demonstrated once and for all. Russell did not tick the amiability box. He was, I think, by all accounts, available. But on the amiability count, he lost out, as we've seen, as Asquith says, to Sir Richard Webster. But on the ability count, it was no contest. Because for those who say, well, anyone could have done it uh, to pick it, I don't think that's right. Um, you have an example of supreme ability uh, in what Sir Charles Russell did. But you also have an example of the opposite. Go back to the cross-examination and think 
But this is the first time, the start of the cross-examination, and Sir Richard Webster uses up some of his credit to get up and say, I think we'll have that photocopy, or photograph, my lords. And that allows Russell to immediately put him in his place, man to boy, do not interrupt my cross-examination. And not a word from the judges to say you're being a little hard on the Attorney General, after all, Mr. Russell. And if you think of it, and this is the truth um, that, that I encountered at times at tribunals, you know, you don't go back to zero. You don't make the next interjection as if nothing has happened. You now have used up a bit of your credit, and you're going to be much slower to stand up and risk another belt from Russell. Uh, and the judges are not going to tolerate it uh, as easily. So for Sir Richard Webster to get up and say, I'm going to interrupt the cross-examination of the most important witness to say, as if I'm still in charge, let's photograph these, le these letters, was an act of um, uh, lack of ability uh, as opposed to the extreme ability um, that uh, Sir Charles Russell showed. This was an absolute triumph for Parnell. Parnell returned to the House of Commons to a standing ovation. And everyone wrote uh, to Russell to congratulate him, including Lord Coleridge, the Lord Chief Justice, who said, but interestingly said, you had marvellous materials to work with, but you used them exquisitely. And he said also, I am so glad to have had my, my uh, impression of Mr. Parnell vindicated. He is a man for whom I have had the greatest admiration. And it's useful when you see this story in terms of Perfidious Albion, the Times and the Tories, to remember that there was this large swathe of English opinion that was fully in, in, uh, in favour of um, Home Rule and Parnell. And I sort of think sometimes that, they, that that piece of cross-examination was a bit like bullfighting. People don't like bullfighting, and I don't like it, but you can't resist some sort of fascination with it. And I remember reading a great book that described what is involved and why some people adore it. And one of the things is bravery, it's courage, it's standing in front of a fighting bull that um, can do enormous damage to you. Um, but what isn't known, or not well known, is that the, the matador, who stands in front of the bull at the end, is equipped with a sword, which is a very thin rapier, which is the precise length from the bull's neck to its heart, no more. And the whole function is to get this bull reared to be a proud fighting bull that holds its head high, so tired, so distracted by the sort of distractions of the cape, to lower its head ever so slightly to allow the one-inch square gap emerge from which the sword can penetrate through right down to the heart. And that's what Russell did in this case, that straight, sweet, um, precise blow that killed this case stone dead. Now, um, that's not the only example of um, great opening shots in cross-examinations or in submissions. Um, and I'm going to indulge myself a little by saying that um, in, the, in the context in which I came across this story again, there were at least two examples that I would like to remember. Um, in the Beef Tribunal, not itself seen as a forensic um, masterpiece. Um, in fact, there were many great, great days. And one of the curiosities of the Beef Tribunal, then regarded as a long-running affair of two, two and a half years, um, things had happened, not intended, but it so happened that Mr. Albert Reynolds gave evidence as the first, I think, sitting Taoiseach to give evidence in a, in a tribunal of inquiry. 
It wasn't intended that way, but it's one of those things that um, if the thing goes on long enough, sides change. And the dramatic situation arose that he was giving evidence and one of the principal uh, sides, the side that was making allegations about Albert Reynolds, was now the side of Mr. Desmond O'Malley, who was um, the Minister for Industry and Commerce in the government, which now headed by, by Mr. Reynolds. And I was an onlooker at this, I'm happy to say, rather than a participant. But it was a sort of dramatic event because it was politics happening at the same time as there was a, um, as the, the issues were being debated about events that had occurred eight years ago when people were being asked uh, what they remembered about various meetings. Um, and a really bizarre thing happened, which was that one of the assertions, and there was this sort of, at times seemed like a fake battle because it was clear that the parties that they represented were not happy in government, but at the same time they seemed to be muddling along and there seemed to be an, an understood agreement that each could say a certain amount about each other and nothing would, nothing would go wrong. But there was this bizarre dispute, which was that at one stage, Mr O'Malley said that Mr Reynolds had exposed the country to the greatest civil claim in history. That was the claim made in relation to the, the credit insurance beef um, claim. And Mr. Reynolds responded in fairly uh, strong language that this was false. False, he said, because um, it was well known that the claim in respect of the ICI collapse was the biggest claim in Irish legal history. Now, I find that a little bit strange that the answer was that it, it may not have been the worst, it was only the second worst. And in any event, having I later had time to look at both statements of claim and no one could tell because they were drafted in the finest Irish tradition of making sure you never let out, left out anything and didn't prevent any possible turn in your favour. And it literally was impossible to identify how much was claimed in either case. And so this sort of proxy war was going on and, that, and the Taoiseach gave evidence and he was passed around in circumstances much more difficult than Sir Charles Russell had to face because you were standing across a very, very big room and you don't, didn't have the immediate drama of the, the witness box and you had to cross-examine cross from microphones. And Adrian Hardiman was acting for uh, Desmond O'Malley and at this stage there had been a certain amount of um, effective uh, tennis played, batting the ball back and forward between various teams without much uh, damage being done and everyone was watching to see, in a sort of interested way, to see how things go in the politics of all of this. And, and things were quietening down and Adrian got up and he, he, asked a, his first question, he asked his first question, a question which precipitated a general election, which is a, a rare achievement for a barrister. <laughs> and he said, my memory of it is he said, sir, do you accuse my client of perjury? Now, that was a question that took everyone unawares, not least the Taoiseach, because there's a whole series of things going on in your mind. There's the politics. Oh, this looks bad. Um, Fergus Finlay, who was there for the Labour Party, left and said, get the election started. There's, you know, th that's it. Um, there's the, what does he mean? What perjury? There's the sort of Victorian way where you have to untangle the sentence. I, didn't, I just said something, you know, and I was just responding in kind to what had been said about me. No, it's not. If I say he's a perjurer, but if I don't, and by the time you get to the end of that thought, you've already wasted too much time, lost um, control, and, and the cross-examiner was in charge. It was like saying, it was like somebody jumping across the net 
and shoving the other person aside and saying, this isn't actually lawn tennis, this is mixed martial arts. <laughs> um, and it was, on any account, a brilliant cross-examination. Uh, in difficult conditions, a brilliant modern cross-examination, because it was a painstaking cross-examination by reference to documentation, um, and uh, bringing somebody through something very carefully, very closely, and, and to a point where everyone could see uh, the point that was being made. It was another example, I think, of one of Lord Russell's insights. He said that among the things a barrister needed was uh, for his advice would be to expand their vocabulary by 300 words. It's, after all, a word game, he said. Uh, and that was a, 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 an insight that was offered in more colloquial terms by one of the onlookers at the Beef Tribunal who said to me, that fella swallowed a dictionary at birth. <laughs> um, and in fact, that's a, you know, it's a telling thing. Recently, I read that Judge Scalia spent a lot of time with his clerks with Webster's Dictionary, the second edition, because he thought the third had lost, all, had lost the plot and had become entirely uh, permissive, and checking the precise words that he was using. And Ju Mr. Justice Henshi, when he died, one of the members of his family said that beside his desk were a pile of dictionaries. You know, it's a great skill that, is being that, is, that we're looking at. It's a narrow enough skill, but it is a, a skill that depends on the precise use of words. A, a different example that occurred and that I can drag in, and I wish to spare the blushes of the people concerned, but still, um, uh, the reason I had, had the reason to go back to trial by tribunal was that an issue arose uh, in relation to TDs who had made statements. They had made allegations in the Dáil, and in the same tradition of the Commission, the, the terms of, in, uh, of reference said to look, the tribunal had to look into all the allegation, allegations made in the Dáil. And so there were this endless number of, of allegations going back some distance. And the, some of the, the, the witnesses made statements appending their Doyle statements. And then the question came, could they be asked as to the source of the information that they had used in making those statements, statements which had now been made to the tribunal? And there were two pieces of litigation that arose out of that, which were heard by Hugh Gagan. And they were firstly that the TDs claimed they had a constitutional privilege under Article 1513, and secondly that they had a common law privilege akin to uh, solicitor, client, priest, penitent, and akin to the argument then being made in relation to journalistic privilege, although this was just before Goodwin and Mahan and Kina, etc. Um, and uh, when looking at all this, I discovered that the first time there had been a claim for journalistic privilege to refuse to disclose a source was in the context of the Special Commission, when the Times had sought to not to disclose the identity of the person from whom they had got the letters. And so we wanted to make the point that this was not a case of simply saying it's a great thing not to disclose uh, an identity, because that's taking evidence away from the tribunal, which may be vital. And if that had occurred in the context of the Special Commission, if Piggott had not been identified, he couldn't have been cross-examined. If he couldn't have been cross-examined, he couldn't have been exposed. And if he hadn't, how would things have turned out? How would things have turned out in Irish history? 
And I was sort of shy about making that point to Hugh Gagan, who was the High Court judge, but it was, in, but it was suggested it should be made, and the, an extract from the cross-examination was put in and, when, and read, and Hugh Gagan, when Hugh Gagan said, um, and what happens next, I realised that um, he was as intrigued with the story as the rest of us. Um, but we lost that, but there was an, an appeal to the Supreme Court, and the appeal in the Supreme Court proceeded first on the question of the... Um, of the, uh, the constitutional question, which was Article 1513, and the assertion, which was like a sort of Martin Escher painting, it depended on which way you looked at it. The allegation was, well, if you ask us about what we said in our statements, our statements which repeated what was attached, what was said in the doll, you'll be infringing Article 1513, which says that members of the Oireachtas shall not, in respect of any utterance in either house, be amenable to any court or authority other than that the house itself. And that argument failed before in the High Court, but on the appeal, it was clear that it was succeeding. Um, and the, the court was sort of calm, and things were going along, and then counsel for the Attorney General, who was taking a, the different point, tried to say, well, no, you're being asked about the statements made to the tribunal, and that's permissible, and, and received a number of very difficult and penetrating questions and a fairly rough ride. Um, and it looked like everything was, was finished. And, uh, I, and, uh, and then uh, Dermot Gleeson, who is here, got up. Uh, and this is the fag end of the, the case and unlikely to change things. And the event didn't change things. But he said, um, my lords, he said, this case resolves itself down to maybe five words. Um, uh, any utterance in either house. It probably, he said, resolves itself to three words in either house. In fact, he said, it resolves itself into one word, that word in. And whichever way this case is to be decided, my friends cannot win unless that word in means out. <laughs> and there was, an, it was, there was a moment when everybody stopped. Everybody stopped. There was a sort of palpable, oh my God, and the court, the court saying, you, you can't be serious that we're, we're, we're saying something like that. I, I thought, and when I think of it, I think of the Mike, great Mike Tyson line. Everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. <laughs> now, um, now, to say, um, that was a turning point in the case. One judge dissented. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court uh, rather perversely came to the conclusion they still accepted that there was a breach of Article 1513. Now, those of you uh, who are experienced and those of, maybe those of you who are younger uh, will learn that, well, that's life. Life is one series of disappointing Supreme Court decisions. Um, um, now, what are, what are we to make of all of this? Theatrical, yes, but is that the point? Well, no. Um, I certainly want to avoid a barrage of emails from my colleagues saying, are you the person who said that every witness had to be asked to write down the, uh, words on a page or accused of being a perjurer? I think of John Mortimer's great story of growing up with his father, who was the author of Mortimer and Wills, a tall, I think, striking man, blind, who used to prepare his cases in the evening by having his wife read the brief to him. And then he would say, who's again me tomorrow? I hope it is a foeman worthy of my steel. And he said to the young John Mortimer, starting off as a barrister, when you get up to cross-examine, wait, count to ten because it establishes mastery of the court and unnerves the witness. And John Mortimer accepted his father's advice much as I did mine. 
and on his first case had got to five before an angry co county court judge said, oh, get on with it. <laughs> um, it would, I think it would be completely the wrong thing to draw from this the conclusion that being a barrister is about the theatrical moment or the great phrase. Um, and in fact, this is another of Lord Russell's intuitions, if you like, because he was being praised by somebody who said, how do you have this great intuition to be able to identify the weak point in a case or the important point in a case? And he turned around and he said, that's not intuition, that is work. None of these things could have been done without the confidence of knowing that behind it, it could be backed up by, an by, by material, either for the cross-examination of the Taoiseach Albert Reynolds, either for the submission in relation to constitutional privilege, or in Russell's case, for the cross-examination. And the Parnell Commission gives a, no a great example of that truth, because as I said, it was not just about the forgeries. There were all these other allegations that had to be addressed, and that was bad and difficult territory for the Irish uh, Parliamentary Party and for Sir Charles Russell. And he addressed that. And day 63, the Times case closed. And it was like a case like that. And he rose to address the tribunal. And he made a speech for eight days, going through all the allegations and addressing them all and setting out uh, the, the case that they were making in that regard. And he started off by saying, who are the accused? The accused here, he said, are 65 members of the Irish Parliamentary Party, but every member of the Irish Parliamentary Party stands together with those 65. And they are people elected from every county in Ireland. Uh, what is being done here, he said, is something Edmund Burke said was impossible, an attempt to draw an indictment against a whole nation. And in that moment, he said, this is not some people in the west of Ireland who, who maimed cattle that we are talking about. This is an accusation made against an entire nation. He made his, he, and he made the nation in that moment his client and took on that responsibility. And at the same time said, if you are going to criticize them, if you are going to disparage them, you will have to deal with me first, because he, a man who was now regarded as the preeminent barrister in London, a former Attorney General of the, of the Liberal, Liberal Party, uncertain to rise higher in English society. It would have been easier for him to say, I don't like that stuff either. It's shocking to me. Why do they behave like that? And instead, he said, you cannot make these findings without dealing, without condemning an entire country. And he embarked upon a historical uh, uh, submission designed to say, essentially, what, yes, there were agrarian, there are agrarian outrages, what do you expect? And he told Barry O'Brien afterwards that he, that he was on tenterhooks for every moment, expecting that the judges would say, why should we listen to this? We don't care about the history. We are here to find out if these things happened or not. And he spent, in a sense, all the capital that he had amassed as a barrister, as an attorney general, and as the person who had just destroyed Richard Piggott, to be allowed to address the tribunal on Irish history and why it was, not whether agrarian outrages happened, but why it was they happened. Um, and in a sense, he was trying to reverse the Times strategy. 
he now wanted to have a wholesale win on the forgery and to blur and get a draw, as it were, on the agrarian outrages and the violence. And on the eighth day of his, of his um, uh, address, he finished. Um, and he said something which... Uh, and he, he said, I've come to the end. He thanked the court for the indulgent hearing. He said, my lords, my colleagues and myself have had a responsible duty. We have had to defend not merely the leaders of a nation, but the nation itself. To defend, to defend the leaders of a nation whom it was sought to crush. To defend a nation whose hopes it was sought to dash to the ground. This inquiry, intended as a curse, has proved a blessing. Designed, prominently designed, to ruin one man, it has been his vindication. In opening this case, I said we represented the accused. My lords, I claim leave to say that today the positions are reversed. We are the accusers. The accused are there. And a woman who was a, a, a famous novelist who was there said she could not describe the experience of being in the courtroom at that time. She said, um, I heard Sir Charles, Charles Russell wind up his magnificent speech and shall never forget the scene and the sensations of that last day. I need not tell you what was said, of course, the world knows that now, but the way in which it was said, the manner and the effect were beyond description. At that passage, when I opened the case, my lords, I said I represented the accused. He began in an ordinary conversational tone, but I shall never forget the voice of thunder in which he continued, we are the accusers and the accused are there. He stood erect and with one outstretched arm pointed to where the Attorney General and the Time solicitors were sitting. I assure you, my blood ran cold and a thrill went through the whole court. Again, when he said, I speak for the land of my birth, his voice quite failed and I saw him put his hand to his eyes and wipe away the tears. Now, um, that is something that deserves greater credit than if even the theatrics of the Pigot cross-examination. Um, because he sought, on behalf of the entire country, to turn back on itself the strategy made by the British government and the greatest newspaper then in the English-speaking world. Um, and he sought to give a coherent version, as it were, to Irish people for why it was that these things happened in Ireland. And it was reprinted in a book and circulated widely in Ireland. Um, and um, Finbar Fox told me that he's, as you may know, married into the Maguire family, that his, um, that Cleana's grandfather, I think, as a young boy, was brought from Wicklow to London with supporters to support Parnell at the Parnell Commission. And what must it have been for those people, those Irish people, going to London, the centre of the empire, to hear this case put so bravely on their behalf uh, by Sir Charles Russell. Um, soon after this, these events, the Liberals returned to power. Gladstone um, appointed uh, Lord, Sir Charles Russell to the uh, Law Lords. He tried to have him appointed Lord Chancellor, but couldn't do so because of the prohibition on a Catholic holding that office. And instead, he wrote to him saying that he was glad to be able to appoint him Lord Chief Justice. He was appointed Lord Chief Justice in 1894. He had a distinguished career as a judge. He was very admired 
Among his other things, he went to see a part of the Dreyfus trial when that came into court in France. He also conducted a trial of uh, the Jemison raid um, and was very um, forthright in that. But he died unexpectedly uh, in 1900 at the age of 68. His son, one son was Charles Russell, very who set up a very famous solicitor's firm in London. Another went into the bar and also became Lord Russell of Cologne and also sat on the appellate committee of the House of Lords with Lord Atkin and was regarded as the only person who was Lord Atkin's equal in uh, intellect or indeed in, um, uh, in uh, skill. And a further grandson also became uh, a member of the House of Lords, another Lord Russell of Cologne, and a great-grandson uh, became, it was Sir Nicholas Bratza, who was for a long time the English judge on the European Court of Human Rights. Now, sorry for detaining you so long. Um, he, he, to his, so, his son Charles Russell, who set up the, the, um, the solicitor's firm, he sent a, a list of rules, ten rules that are worth living with uh, even today. But two of them that strike me was, he said, get to the bottom of any affair entrusted to you, even the simplest, and do each piece of work as if you were a tradesman, turning out a best sample of his manufacture by which he wishes to be judged. Do not content with being merely an expert master of form and detail, but strive to be a lawyer. When he died, it so happened that the American ambassador to Britain was Joseph Choate, a very distinguished American lawyer who he had met on both his trips to the US in 1883 and 1896. And he spoke at the funeral uh, or of the, the, the service. Uh, and he said something that I think still resonates today and captured something of the achievement of this man who had risen from modest surroundings in, uh, in, in Ireland and had gone to England and had risen to the, height, the, the highest heights in the legal profession in what was then the center of the largest empire the greatest empire the world had, uh, in the world at the time. And Joseph Choate said, uh, there was no royal road to eminence at the bar. It came by merit or it did not come at all. Hence, merit was sure to be widely appreciated wherever it was manifested. Um, it's still a puzzle to me why at the time, I, uh, both back in 1971 and today, Lord Russell was not more widely, to, widely admired in Ireland because um, part of it, I think, is that he had gone to England. Part of it is that he had become Lord Chief Justice. And after 1922, since the needle of Irishness got stuck on one particular version uh, of history, which Parnell just about got uh, 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 his part in, and Michael Davitt, for example, was largely forgotten. And to have been Lord Chief Justice of England was like to have fought, perhaps, in the First World War, something to be quietly forgotten. Yet he never stopped being an Irishman. And at critical times, he, ex he, he stood up for uh, people, the, the, the people of Ireland. And when we look back now in a much better age, we're able, I think, to appreciate the different strands that go into Irish history. And uh, I sort of think that the pantheon of Irish legal, legal heroes is not so chock full um, that we can't find a place, and indeed, the, the, the corner reserved for judges from Newry is not so crowded <laughs> that we can't find a place uh, for Sir Charles Russell, the first Lord Russell of Cologne. Thank you.
I want to thank uh, Donald for uh, another stunning uh, lecture in this, in this series. It has certainly lived up to the excellent standards that his uh, predecessors in, in this role have performed. It really was a truly, truly excellent uh, lecture. Thank you very much, Donald, on all our behalves. Um, so ends this lecture series. Uh, many of us have been here since the middle of February, now some six months. Many of us have grown older here. Uh, my hair was a different colour when we started this. Indeed, actually, I had hair uh, back in February. Um, our lectures have ranged from the 1790s right through to the pardon of Harry Gleeson in more recent times. We've been through the trial of Robert Emmett. We've been through Daniel O'Connell, Mam Trasna, the Young Irelanders, 1916, Roger Casement, the impact of independence on the judiciary, and the trial of Harry Gleeson, culminating, I think, with uh, a wonderful lecture this evening by, by Donald. The standard, I think, of all of the lectures has been quite stunning, and I really want to take this opportunity now of thanking all of the speakers who delivered lectures in this series. Um, this was a novel concept for us. The idea was entirely that of Shane Murphy, and I think we owe Shane a great deal of thanks for his fantastic idea. You've been listening to Mr. Justice Donald O'Donnell deliver his lecture on the Pigot forgeries and Russell's cross-examination as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lowlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.